Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for the Inflation Nerd Deathmatch. In full disclosure, no inflation nerds will be physically harmed during this discussion, so don't worry about anyone's well-being. So joining Simplify is Michael Green, and Harley Bassman is Jeff Snyder, who is the uh, head of global research at Alhambra Investments. And let me paint a picture for how this discussion came about. Now, Jeff had just settled in for a nice, quiet work day on Thanksgiving Eve morning. He takes a couple minutes to inhale. It's been an eventful year, but it's been a good year so far. And he's appreciating everything in life. He's a good all-around person. He shares his knowledge widely and freely. Please go on to Alhambra's website and see some of the, the, the content that he's produced. It's spectacular. Alhambra's having a good year. He's been on, a guest on a number of really wonderful podcasts, including Sri Prakash's uh, Market Champions. And most recently, he's fresh off an overwhelmingly well-received appearance on Macro Voices. So as he's taking his first sip of coffee on Thanksgiving Eve morning, he opens his email and finds a note from the convexity maven himself, Harley Bassman. Is Harley sending Jeff a nice, happy Thanksgiving email? No, he is not. No, Harley is sending Jeff an unsolicited critique, multi-chapter critique of his most recent macro, macro Voices appearance. Happy Thanksgiving, Jeff. So that brings us here today. Jeff, being the wonderful human being that he is, agreed to come on and discuss inflation with us. So we're going to get started with a poll on inflation. The, the poll question is, when is the next time that inflation will be under 2.5%? And so while that poll comes up and while you're answering said poll, let me do some housekeeping. So this conversation is meant to be informative. It's meant to be entertaining, but it is not meant to be taken as investment advice. For those participants who want to throw questions to the panelists, there is a Q&A question down at the bottom of the screen. Again, cleverly disguised as a Q&A button. Submit your questions there. We will try and incorporate as many questions as we can into the conversation. But Mike, take it from here and let's have an awesome conversation in the Inflation Nerd Deathmatch. Fantastic. Thank you for the intro there, Brian. I look forward to seeing what people's responses. So I'm going to share my screen and start off with the chart that kind of captures everything that everybody is focused on, which is this dynamic of extraordinary growth in the M2 money supply on a year over year basis. We've dwarfed the 1970s inflation. Clearly all hell is about to break loose. Jeff Snyder, why is that not the case? Because M2 money supply statistics have been unreliable for decades. They went off track, and even Alan Greenspan noted in the early 1990s, as in the same way M1 money statistics had during the 1970s. They'd simply become obsolete by monetary evolution, advances in banking and bank communication that essentially placed money outside the boundaries of M1 and M2. And so we can't really rely on M2 to tell us a lot about what's happening in the overall monetary situation, which doesn't include just M2 depository domestic money supply, it actually encompasses this entire global network of what I call the Euro dollar system, which is a essentially a world spanning currency regime, which operates as the global reserve currency. So if you take a look at M2 in isolation, you're only looking at a very small and narrow slice of the overall monetary picture and doing so can lead you to make significant errors in monetary interpretation. So I agree with that take, and I just would highlight this. This is a chart that tracks the broad money, i.e. the M2 type dynamics relative on a, you know, to population and compares it to inflation, right? And so it goes all the way back into the 1870s. It is very clear that there is a relationship or more accurately, there was a relationship. And this is what underpinned the work of Milton Friedman and everyone else. Because if we actually look at that dynamic, we see two things. One is, is that it's a coincident indicator. So it's not a leading indicator in any way, shape or form. It tells us nothing about what's going to happen in the future. And even within that context, if we look at how much explanatory power it has, Right, so this is looking at 20 year periods and the importance of broad money supply per capita in explaining CPI 
it's completely collapsed. Today, effectively, there is no relationship between the two. All right, now, Harley, you're on the defensive because Jeff has come out and he said, innovation in the financial system has changed the definition of what we should be tracking in the aggregates. I agree with him, which means we're right. Harley, <laughs> what's your defense? As far as this chart here goes, I mean, I noticed that the whole thing collapses as soon as the Fed um, steps in with all their policies and kind of controls the market. More importantly, okay, I'll stipulate that M2 may no longer be the definition, but going back to your prior chart, I mean, the money's been printed. Um, I guess people will say that QE is not money printing. Uh, I would qualify that in the same way as um, the old joke is you, one never buys beer, one rents beer. Um, the Fed has printed the money. Maybe they didn't buy the bonds directly, but they bought it. The, 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 the Treasury issued them to Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs added a few ticks and sold them to, to the Fed. I mean, the money has been flushed into the system. And I think it's pretty clear that what we've seen is the Fed wanted inflation and they got inflation. Um, they got inflation in assets. And, and now we're seeing inflation in, in um, CPI and, and labor uh, wages, which is what they really wanted to. But I guess my, my bigger concept is the Fed came in and they created money out of the blue sky and the money went into assets, stocks, bonds, houses, gold, art, Bitcoin, I suppose. Um, and to say that that the two aren't linked is kind of preposterous. Um, I mean, basically, who are you going to believe? Me or your lying eyes? Jeff, you got brilliant charts, and they're all factually true. Well, that, the end of the day, though, I mean, the numbers are the numbers, man. Yes, the moment, the numbers are the numbers, and let's start with those numbers. Let's let, forget the forget the charts, though. Let's talk about bank reserves. What is it the Federal Reserve actually does? Now, everybody just repeats the idea that the Fed prints money, but does the Fed actually print money? On the one hand, yes, they obviously print federal, physical Federal Reserve notes. They do that. But the economy hasn't used hand-to-hand -hand currency in any substantial fashion since the 1920s, maybe. So they're really down to printing bank reserves. And what are bank reserves actually used for? Well, neither you or I, Harley, can go into a grocery store or go to the gas pump and use bank reserves to buy anything in the real economy because you or I can't do anything with bank reserves. Only banks can do anything with bank reserves. And so if the banking system has no use for bank reserves, regardless of how many the Federal Reserve creates, it's not really printing money. It's essentially printing an accounting fiction. And it's sort of the same thing with M2. M2, as I said, is a narrow slice of the overall monetary system. And what we don't know, because nobody tracks this, is that sometimes when you see M2 go up, and I'm thinking of a specific example from the middle of September 2008, until November of 2008. So during the worst of the worst crisis since the Great Depression, you might recall M2 kind of jumped. M2 skyrocketed during the worst monetary crisis. And the reason it did was that because the banking system decided we're having all sorts of monetary trouble in this other shadow money wholesale system. And so a lot of the funding that they took on, which was some still legitimate funding during the, the, during the crisis, they went back on the old depository standby. So in that sense, what we saw was money destruction that nobody could see except for how it was reacting or how it was creating uh, impacts in the real economy and the real markets. So money, money destruction that we couldn't easily see and observe versus money creation that you could, at least M2 has some monetary use, whereas bank reserves don't really have any use whatsoever. So as I always say, it's not what you can see, it's more often what you can't see. And the M2 provides us pretty good, as, as do bank reserves, they provide a pretty good counterexample for this idea that the Fed prints money. Well, the Fed makes bank reserves, that's all they actually do. And in, in, in the case of M2 depository money, that's not the whole story either. So when we start out by saying the Fed has printed money, therefore it's going to get inflation. No, that's not the, just on a, at a basic technical cases. That's not even true. So, so, so once upon a time in the beginning of my career, uh, come 11 o'clock or 11.15, whatever time it was, the Fed would come in and do RP repos or reverse repos, put money in or out of the system. You're saying that was just like kind of um, just for fun because they were bored at lunchtime because the Fed actually has no ability to go move interest rates around, you're saying. So I don't. I, so, so let me interject for a second here, because I don't think that's actually what Jeff is saying. And I, I want to add an additional wrinkle onto it, Harley, which is, one, when we look at things like this growth in M2, it's really important to disaggregate what actually happened here. So in the same thing that happened in 2008, 
faced with the potential loss of lines of credit and the risk that funding would be pulled and that they would be short of cash, what we really saw that drove this jump in M2 was the conversion of lines of credit into checking accounts. They effectively drew down their line of credit, depositing it into their checking accounts to create short-term cash dynamics in the same way that as I became aware of it, I called my wife and said, hey, make sure there's enough cash in the, in the safe at home, right? It's the same underlying dynamic that is an accounting component where I'm taking cash that I should have access to, but is still at the discretion of the bank if they decide to cancel my line of credit, as we saw in 2008, and converting it into, I actually possess it and I'm holding it in advance. The second yeah, thing that I happened- I was just going to say that a lot of that was, just, it was again, in response to changes in uh, destruction of money in these wholesale markets, commercial paper, for, for a really good example, what Mike is saying you know, companies that had been depending, been relying upon, and not just companies, but SIVs and SPVs that have been relying upon commercial paper funding, for example, when those markets completely dried up and disappeared, they they triggered all of these liquidity backstops at the banks who had told them during the middle 2000s, hey, don't worry about this stuff. The money will always be there. You can always fund these things uh, at the drop of a hat. And that, when that proved to not be the case, when money was destroyed in the commercial paper market and all of these uh, global euro dollar spaces, they simply turned to their alternative, which was a liquidity backstop provided by these, these, uh, these large, large banking companies that converted what were a hidden shadow money uh, uh, funding arrangement into something that you actually could see in the M2 aggregate, this, these checking accounts. So Mike, you're saying that the Fed printed the money or created the money, created the reserves, put them in the banks. And until the banks lent the money, we wouldn't get any of the activity. And thus we saw a velocity collapse. I, 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 I suggest you look until, at the slide. Until, until we saw that happen, yes. But something else happened that was really important, right? And so this is part of the dynamic that I think is important in mediating between you two. Because you know we talk about this component of inflation the, you know, to use the Ben Hunt sort of dynamic of inflation, the narrative dynamic, right, versus inflation, which is a rise in the general price level that is predicated on an expansion of the, mon of the monetary base, right, driven effectively by the depreciation of the currency. What Jeff and I are arguing is, is that we have not seen the latter, but we've very clearly seen the former. And the reason that it was different this time is because following the conversion of those lines of credit into checking account balances, we then engaged in a fiscal policy of PPP loans that created the capacity for banks to lend. The government stepped in and said, we will guarantee all of them. And so suddenly those reserves became very valuable in terms of the ability to lend them out. It's not exactly how it works, but we can dig into that on another day. And the government then turned around and forgave the vast majority of those PPP loans. It's effectively the same as universal basic income that was created for households in one form or another. We flooded the system with actually equity checks, not any real form of monetary base expansion or credit supply or anything else, right? And so suddenly yeah. companies have found time. themselves very rich on unencumbered cash. That is a different dynamic than the Fed, quote unquote, printing. It was tied to the fiscal policy expansion. I'll give you that you need fiscal spending to create CPI inflation per se. But slide 10, is this okay. just, is this just um, a, a random accident? Nope, nope, I have 10. No, it's not an accident. It's telling you right keep, there no, that your we, money statistics are wrong. That's this it. Slide. Yeah. What is this? This is just a, ra a random number. This is this, this is the whole story here. They, this money got printed, whatever you want to call it. Reserves were created, and the money went somewhere. It didn't stay on the it didn't stay on the Fed's balance sheet, or it didn't stay on commercial banks. Someone went and bought securities here. So I guess the question I would would ask you, Harley, is if this is a causative component as compared to what's referred to as a co-integration of two somewhat independent series, why would we see it go up? while going down? Why would we see it going down while going up or flat to the side, right? Like there, there's not the relationship that, that, you know, yes, I have two lines that are going up, but one is not actually explanatory for the other. 
And as I always say, these are these are actually close correlations for a very easily identifiable reason, which is both are reactions to the same thing, which is an exogenous deflationary monetary shock. You have at the same time, or actually in a very close uh, uh, coincidence, you have a problem in this shadow money system that provokes the market to demand safe and liquid instruments, which then means the market buys safe and liquid instruments. And eventually, after much hand-wringing and denials, the Federal Reserve or whatever central bank it happens to be says, oh yeah, we do have a monetary problem, so we better do something. And because the Fed or any central bank, all they ever do is raise the level of bank reserves since they're at the zero lower bound, you have this coincidence. The Fed is buying bonds because it has to to raise the level of bank reserves. At the same time, the market is buying bonds because of both of them a reaction to an exogenous monetary issue. So it's not one is causing the other. It's both are exactly both are identifying the same things, mostly at the same time, but not quite at the same time. Usually, the market starts buying bonds, and then the Fed comes in later and uh, to follow up. So if the Fed started selling fifty billion, hundred billion a month in bonds, taking that blue line down. Would the red line go down also, or it could keep going up? Well, part of it would go down because we would no longer define them as bonds that are held in the public, right? So there, there is a component of the mechanic dynamic to it. But I mean, we, I, we have a lot of examples. I mean, we have, we have examples where it has fallen. You know, here's one in 2012, right? It I'm was not going to deny that, that, that it's, it's not a hand-in-glove movement, but I mean, I don't think you could, you could deny that there's a correlation here. Uh, and, and we're not. And also, <laughs> we're saying there Definitely. is. And I'm Definitely pretty sure that if they started selling bonds, it would go south. They both go south together. Harley, if every time your child took food out of the pantry without permission, you spanked him, there would be a correlation between food missing from the pantry and the color of your child's butt cheeks. But that would have absolutely <laughs> nothing to do with a causative relationship. Well, yeah. still in the food caused the butt cheeks to get spanked. <laughs> but that's exactly <laughs> what you're saying. The fall in the asset prices causes the central bank to react in the only way it knows how to react at this point. And you look at that, that red line, the change in the value of market bonds, those correlate closely, not just with the Fed's later reaction or other central banks around the world. They also correlate closely with other market reactions that all tell us the same thing that the, the monetary system, this exogenous shadow money system, is experiencing a deflationary spasm. And that you can expect not only demand for safe and liquid instruments to go up, but you can expect that central banks will soon be buying them because that's what central banks do to create to raise a level of bank reserves. Okay. And when we don't have these monetary spasms, those are the times when you see the value of the bonds go down. Because we would expect if the market becomes slightly more optimistic, then it would not demand a, 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 an overwhelming amount of safe and liquid instruments. So again, it, it's correlation based upon the idea that there's this exogenous shadow monetary system that, ex, that didn't just experience one single spasm in 2008, that it's been in a constant or malfunctioning state ever since then. Not in a straight line, but these periodic intermittent spasms that provoke not just responses in the bond market, but also in monetary policymakers as well. Okay, so let's, let's let's dial back. Do we have inflation right now? <laughs> See, I that's I wanted to talk about initially that poll because I think the poll is already rigged because it says when will you expect inflation to go down? And and as, as you know, Harley, and, and as you probably do, Mike, I don't believe we've had inflation. Exactly. I know, as, as Mike said, consumer prices have absolutely increased, but it's not because of a monetary reason. It's not because of overwhelming supply of currency into the system that continues to oversupply currency th through time. So consumer prices, because it's not a monetary reason, consumer prices that have risen must have risen for some other reason. So in my mind, in my definition, and this is not a, an argument about semantics, it's an argument about cause and effect. It's not a monetary cause, therefore it's not inflation. So what else could be causing consumer prices to rise? And historically speaking, we have any number of, of examples to draw upon, which tell us that during periods when demand and supply are in, are in such imbalance, you would expect consumer prices to rise in any type of supply shock. And that's kind of what we've seen. We have inflation. You're making it sound to me like the old economist joke, like, like yeah. I don't have a hammer, so I'll assume that I have a hammer. <laughs> I mean, there is inflation, clearly. I mean, I, knew, I know that when I go to the store, I get, I get fewer meatballs and tomatoes than I used to get. 
So, I mean, that is inflation there. And so the question is- No, it's that's consumer prices going up, but it's not because of inflationary reasons. And again- You call that inflation usually. In common parlance, <laughs> I call it inflation. So this is- uh, No, Harley, it's, again, this it's, is not actually... a, it's not an argument about semantics. It's an argument about a co- what is actually causing this. And in food prices in particular, what really happened was pretty straightforward and simple. We shut down everything, which caused the way people eat to change. And it, it caused the way people eat to change in a way that the system could not handle very easily. Supply chains had to be rewritten. Production lines had to be re-altered at great expense and great care. And a lot of inventory had to be destroyed in the initial COVID phase because the, the, the U.S. system in particular was not designed to meet the needs of the post-COVID world. Okay, so it so was very much a have, supply issue. The higher prices we have that are not inflation Will those higher prices go revert back or will they stay here? I think some of them do revert back, but as you know, prices tend to be sticky. So some of these higher prices are going to be around for quite some time, if not permanent. Okay, so we've had a permanent increase in prices, right? And a permanent increase in prices higher than wages. So people that have lost, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's ultimately deflationary. Right. So that, that, that becomes part of the dynamic, right? is people forget that higher prices are a mechanism for allocation of resources, right? That's what we're actually trying to do. We're facing an outward shift in aggregate demand to use the slide from Jeff that he has on the, that I put up on the screen here, right? We had an outward shift in aggregate demand for ketchup in a certain form, right? To go ketchup as compared to the containers that you can, you know, if you're at an In-N-Out burger or whatever, you can do it in the store or you can have it taken in a plastic packet. Right, the plastic packages ran out because we had everything takeout versus the in the store consumption collapsed. That type of dynamic is is a mechanism for allocation that is complicated in the environment of a global pandemic, in which nobody wants to be seen as price gouging and raising the price of toilet paper at home and taking advantage of it. But part of what is happening now, and this is one of the things that I've emphasized, is we are seeing evidence of pricing power tied to increased consolidation, we are seeing evidence that we have the ability to pass this through. And one of the slides that that I would highlight on this, and this is one that candidly I had missed in a lot of ways and and never would have caught if it hadn't been pointed out to me um, by other analysts, is the dynamic of what's happened to some of our support programs. So things like the SNAP program, which very specifically the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, hands out money to families that are below the poverty line, provides them with additional funds. That we've seen an unbelievable explosion in the amount of support, right? And so exactly as you would expect, when you have that type of fiscal stimulus, where money has literally more than doubled on a per capita basis for the beneficiaries of these programs, if they can only spend it on food at home, guess what's going to happen to the demand for food at home? It's going to go up and we'll see that manifest itself in higher prices. But the question is whether or not it sticks around. And that's where the money part of it comes in. Because if it's only because of these essentially non-economic factors, really political factors, then what we're doing, as Mike just said, we're reallocating resources, not on a productive or efficient basis, but, but on an artificial basis. And that's always, a, that's a, again, that's a deflationary introduction too, because it introduces an inefficiency or friction that harms economic circumstances over the longer run. Just in terms of energy prices or gasoline, we're paying more for gasoline. I think that's probably the public's pr- primary complaint about inflation this year. You know, we're doing so, people are paying more at the gasoline station at the expense of what they're not able to do at other parts of the economy. Whereas if there really was currency overfilling the economy over th- throughout the uh, system, we would see wages and pay and all sorts of other transfer payments that would normalize to that change in prices where it wouldn't just be oil prices going up, it would be everything going up at the same time for a long time. So in, a- in the absence of money, when this is not real inflation, when this is more non-monetary political factors, we're essentially just redistributing the the, uh, the same level of pie, you know, the pie is not expanding. The pie is kind of, in some ways, it's contracted since 2020, and we're kind of redistributing within that smaller space. And that's a really that's that, not inflation. That's uh, not inflation in the monetary sense, right? And that's 
I think that's really the core of, of where we're sitting. And, and I, I'd, I'd add on a couple of other quick components to what Jeff has said. One is when he refers to the idea that this is ultimately deflationary and a couple of people in the Q&A have introduced the idea, <laughs> have introduced the idea of the impact of debt, right? When you introduce those frictions, when you improperly allocate the resources in the system, it makes it harder to generate the income gains that are necessary, the productivity gains that are necessary to ultimately make that debt less impactful on people's capacity to spend, right? So effectively what we've done is we've said, hey, we're a heavily indebted company, right? As a society in aggregate, we're heavily indebted, but you know what, let's throw another party anyway, right? Now, long-term that leads to less economic activity because we're dealing with the hangover. I think that, Jeff, does that feel like a fair assessment of what you're trying to, to, to say in that framework? Yeah, and that's kind of what we're getting at is, that, again, the pie hasn't expanded. The monetary pie hasn't allowed the efficient expansion or the productive expansion of the overall economic system. Instead, it's done the opposite, where we have all of this, these frictions and inefficiencies that eventually contributed to the monetary problem in, in 2020, which has kind of shrunk in the pie. And then as politicians are wont to do, they make the situation worse by introducing all of these artificial measures, which at best create some form of, you know, temporary, uh, you know, sugar high, if you want to call it that. But really what they're doing is over the intermediate and longer term, redistributing along non-productive lines, essentially. And so the problem then becomes, as you just laid out, Mike, and then there's other corollaries to that as well. Essentially, we're making the situation worse, which over time, that, that's, what, that, that's what ends up mattering, not just in terms of consumer prices, but overall economic potential too. And if economic potential as well as consumer prices then become deflationary, and I use that term too loosely, I really need to be more careful about when I say deflation or deflationary. Probably. I just simply mean non-inflation. <laughs> so, okay, let, let, let me propose thing to you. I'll, I'll let you answer it. Okay. So I have said that um, uh, over five thousand years of human history, there's never been a case where the government, the king, whoever the sovereign has printed the coin of the realm, sticks, shiny rocks, whatever it might be, at a faster pace than the overall economy without inflation. I haven't seen this yet. Maybe it was recorded once upon a time in the Library of Alexandria and it burned down, but it hasn't happened. Because if it could happen, then we just give the money to everyone who's poor and there'd be no poor people. And that the Fed has printed money or seemingly something's happened with the balance sheet. And it was sitting there waiting to be the match to come. And Mike would say, the match is going to be fiscal spending or something else. I propose to you this match has now been struck, maybe because of COVID, and that <laughs> we're going to see OER, I'll use the CPI, OER is up and it's a lag. So that is going to feed in. And there's, you know, we have a couple of charts in here where I've stolen from various people that, you know, you might see OER hitting four to 7% in the next few years. Uh, I'd say that um, you've seen food prices are not gonna go down, that China has recently changed the distribution export of ammonia, which is nitrogen, which creates you know, for fertilizers. Um, and that's taken ammonia prices to double in the last X number of months. And then finally, I think it's the overall policy of you know, uh, going green. I'm not gonna say it's good or bad. I'm not gonna get down the rabbit hole of, of global warming, but if we want to go away from fossil to green, there is going to be inflation, higher costs incurred in that, right? Um, because it just takes money and expenditures to go and convert from cheaper fossil fuels to more expensive other fuels. So this is going to basically push inflation, I think, for the next few years, well over two and a half percent. Jeff. Well, let me go back to something you said before, because I think this is the fundamental argument that we're having. I absolutely 100, 1,000, 1 million percent agree with you that any time throughout history when any government or any you know, autocrat, king, whether, you know, whatever, whatever form, has been stupid enough to interfere in the monetary system, it always 100% guaranteed to lead to monetary debasement, currency debasement, inflation, prices, all that stuff. Where I disagree with you is, is whether or not that has actually happened since 2007. And I actually know the date, it was August 9th, 2007, because the Federal Reserve does not print the coin of the realm. The euro dollar banking system does. And the euro dollar banking system says unequivocally that without the euro dollar banking system expanding its balance sheet, it does not matter what the Fed does with bank reserves because the one does not lead to the other. So 
I agree with you. Had the Fed actually printed money, it would have led to inflation long before 2021. It would have created the runaway inflation that everybody was expecting back in 2009 and 2010. Certainly 2011 after QE2, when everybody said the dollar was toast. And in fact, the opposite happened because the Fed did not print money. Bank reserves are not the coin of the realm. The euro dollar system is, and we know without, a, without fail, what is going on in the, in the monetary system was not money print. It was not monetary expansion at all, or at least not sufficient monetary expansion to maintain the same level of growth and productivity. And how do we know that? We know that because the monetary system tells us what's going on. Even though we don't know, we can't observe the shadow money stuff going on, especially offshore outside the United States, the markets tell us what they're doing in the monetary system, even if we don't have a convenient aggregate to measure what's going Colin on. Colin is telling us the, the Fed and the ECB in Japan are, are scooping up everything. I mean, this is like Schrodinger's cat and, and, and the Heisenberg equation. You, you have, the mere fact of observing it moves it. I mean, if the Fed's involved pushing rates. But it's not. Easy. But see, that's the thing. It's not just the yield curve. It's all the other markets in, across the entire global fixed income that tell us what's going on. Western and we do have data. bonds, though, aren't they? So what? Are they buying euro dollar futures? Are they buying interest rate swaps? Are they causing the U.S. dollar to go up in exchange value by their currency debasements? Sure. If, they, if, you, if you buy cash, no. you buy euros. Because no. guys like me go do the arbitrage, okay? That's what we do. <laughs> no, we have, the monetary system has told us, and consistently, again, remember your, your interest rate fallacy. Low rates are not a sign of, of loose money. They're a sign of tight money. They, historically speaking, that's always been the case. Okay, directing us back. Will we, I basically said we're going to have inflation for the next two years, so I'm 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 guess number D. So so you're so guess something else. What okay. do you think is so, happening? So so I think again this comes back to the underlying dynamics of a component of what is the trade, right? So what Jeff and I would both point out or highlight is that the bond market has already rendered its verdict on this and said no, you're not actually going to see the conditions under which higher interest rates are justified. Could you have conditions under which certain segments of the purchasing basket, due to the misallocation of resources or a change, doesn't even have to be missed, we've just changed the way that we allocate resources and where we place relative dollars into people's pockets by doing things like dramatically expanding SNAP that force society to reallocate its resources. And the way we do that, the way we send that signal is higher food prices, for example, or we do it through higher home prices. What we've actually seen is a meaningful change in the demand for, for single family homes outside of cities because I can work from a single family home outside the city with a degree of comfort that I couldn't do from my 400 square foot studio apartment in New York City, right? The relative demand between those two has changed and that shows up in an increase in demand. If that happens in a very short period of time, the inelasticity associated with those products, you're not going to see a dramatic increase in the supply of houses at the same time that the value of those houses is increased. Boomers aren't going to show up and be like, oh, you know what? Let me get rid of my house suddenly because it's gone up in price. And then I'm going to move into the city where I'm in close proximity to all the risks associated with COVID. And by the way, my kids have nowhere to go then. Well, I disagree. Both those points are wrong. Number one, <laughs> the, 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 the Fed, let's call the Fed all central banks in the West, clearly can go and put the number wherever they want. Japan has put the 10-year at 10 cents, and there it is. So I have zero information about Japanese rates because they've said the number is 10 cents. And as far as housing goes, you could basically capture about 80% of the median house price movement in the last two years from the mortgage rate going down by a bucket and a half to two points. So again, I, I'm going to have to push back on that and suggest that one, that doesn't explain the down payment component, which is a critical dynamic in terms of people's ability to buy houses. And the second is, is if that were actually the case in Japan, what we would see is the Japanese yen collapse. And it hasn't. What would argue it has? You know, what you see in the Japanese 85. bond market is coincident signals to the rest of the global bond yields. They've moved in synchronized fashion. And it's not because one central bank is buying in one particular area. It's because the global bond market is a reflection of the global monetary system, which tells us something important about the entire condition. Okay, so it's not back. that yeah. Japanese bond yields have no signal. They have a tremendous signal. And it's a corroborative signal with U.S. Treasuries, German bonds, uh, French oats, and everything else. It's not just that 
one central bank, or you, you know, you can just wave your hand and say central banks are buying bonds. Therefore, we can ignore the most contrary and contradictory signal that tells us that we're not we're not seeing inflation the right way. You can't just do that. I mean, the CPI markets have been consistent. Which number did you pick, A, B, C, or D? Inflation? Did I pick? Yeah, CPI inflation will be under two and a half percent. When? Oh, by the way, well, I didn't. I didn't answer because I'm protesting the, the language of the question. Do you want to? Do you want to rephrase <laughs> the question to make it so you can answer? No, it? I think you know. I would answer the question that I would expect that CPI rates, consumer price acceleration, diminishes in the early part of next year, and I think that's exactly what the markets are telling us. Look at look at the tips market, for example. Tips? The inflation break evens are, are completely inverted, and the five year five year forward rate at around two percent, maybe two ten percent. That's not inflation. Right, pull the chart up. Come on. You can't go to tips, okay? The government is buying more tips than is being net issued, and they own 26% of all tips now. This is a manufactured number. It's, it's worse so than So you're Japan. saying the government wants higher inflation break-evens in the tips market? That they, doesn't they make do. any sense. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. What, look at the other chart, Mike, showing how much the, how they accelerated the percent of ownership uh, for, for tips instead of versus... Um, uh, yeah. But why are they accelerating... All through QE one two three four infinity, they have ten percent, and all of a sudden they own twenty six percent. Why do they shift it? I don't know, but you can't tell me this has not impacted. And this chart goes very nicely with why uh, real rates have gone from zippers to negative buck seventy five. So I actually think so, that the so economy is, is that bad because the economy has been I think that the bad. What I'm all saying along. is this number is garbage. Because the no, but, here. So, you're so just Harley. missing them because it's inconvenient. You're not actually. I mean, the market is is not basing it. First of all, the Fed is buying tips because it has to buy something to raise the level of bank reserves. It can't just buy treasuries or MBS. Tips are microscopic. They can buy T-bills all they want. No, they can't. That's the big problem. We haven't even talked about collateral yet. Right. And In it's case, safe okay, asset so, scarcity. So, so you don't know they can't be buying T-bills and they know they can't be buying T-bills. This is why they haven't been buying T-bills since March 18th of 2020. Why would they go and buy tips then? Look, because you because they have to. People. They got to buy something. Mike, I'll yeah. let you answer this. I know you have an opinion with me. We agree once finally. No. So so this is, Harley, this is actually an, an, an interesting one. So first of all, tips are inferior collateral relative to treasury bills, right? So exactly to, exactly to this point, if I have a system that is short of collateral and collateral is what is required in a credit-based system, right? That's the world we've moved to. We've moved away from an income dynamic towards a collateral-based dynamic. The second component is, is exactly as, as you are pointing out, and I think this is right, when you do this type of outsized purchasing of a sub-segment of the market, you are absolutely going to impact the relative pricing of what's derived from this. So do I actually think that the real interest rate market is minus 1% or so? No, I don't think that the economy is actually that bad. I do think that the relative liquidity between tips markets and bonds markets is driving a component of that, and that the Fed is influencing that. I don't, I, and I don't think Jeff would actually argue that strongly against that observation. No, but I would add that it's in the context of real rates, you look at other curves, euro dollar futures in particular, that are low and flat, even in this double taper, three rate hike environment, they're telling you that yes, the real, the real economic environment is far from robust. And so maybe it's not necessarily minus 1% on the five-year or the 10-year real rate, but it's not that far off either. You know, by the way, I, I know that half the audience here probably does not read the New York Times anymore, but uh, you may have seen that your, 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 your cohort in arms, uh, Krugman, threw in the towel today on inflation. Good. <laughs> that, that, makes me feel very, that makes me feel better. Um, so, so back at the ranch, you think we're not going to see big inflation? It's going to chill down end of this no, year. I think that's that's what the yield curve is saying is flattening, not just in the U.S. but all around the world. I think the euro euro dollar futures curve inversion, as we had emailed previously in the greens and the blues, is signaling the markets getting very anxious about uh, the economic circumstances, especially next year. And a number of other things that are suggesting that the economic climate and the the monetary climate in particular is weakening and tightening across the board in substantial fashion, substantial enough fashion that there is a very good chance that CPIs come down as early as the first part of next year. I will agree with you about one thing, that the yield curve is the most predictive of anything out there and has predicted all, all uh, uh, recessions. So I agree with that. I think right now, which is why it's so curious 
with what's happening, um, but making things more transactional. What is, what is curious to me um, is we've broken the relationship between rates and inflation. I think Mike, you might have a chart up on that. Um, and why is that? Is it because of Fed intervention? Is it because the economy, lots of things that could be whatever, whatever, um, which makes it very difficult to go and invest now. What I propose though is this, I'm curious how you might invest your client's money or advise them um, to, or hint, I guess we can't advise, can we here? Um, I think that if we get inflation, CPI or PC, any, any measure of it, inflation that goes to businesses and we keep low nominal rates, so we have big negative rates. That's actually bullish for stocks because they get to go and raise their prices. And the is there anything rate, that isn't bullish for stocks? I'm just. That's know, what I think. Stocks go up at a 90 degree angle, regardless. And I think Mike knows, you know, passive investing and all the stuff that goes along with it. But you know what you just said, Harley, is a, it's a tremendously important point. It's something that I talk, I don't really talk enough about, and I'm glad that you raised it. Was that you're absolutely right. The links between interest rates and inflation and in general overall monetary conditions was broken a long time ago. And it was broken by this evolution in banking and money across not just the US boundary, but you know, all over the world. The, the offshore global, you know, world-spanning monetary system means that the money doesn't react to a single interest rate or a single money rate, but a whole swath of, of alternative rates. And without getting too deep into the weeds, I would suggest and I would argue that these that you're seeing the same thing that I'm seeing from a different perspective, which is we would expect the, the relationship between interest rates and inflation or money to break down because there isn't the money relationship between interest rates in between. So with your theory, you're basically saying that we should expect negative real rates because of this? That's one potential outcome. And I would even suggest that there's a, there's a very real possibility of negative nominal rates too. There's a reason why we've seen them in Japan. There's a reason why we've seen them in Europe. And it's not the, JG, it's not the Bank of Japan or the ECB. Is that the, the global monetary condition has impacted Japan and in Europe far worse or far more directly than it has the United States. So there is a reason why in Europe and Japan, the entire financial system demands safe and liquid instruments that outright cost them money. They are paying negative rates for a reason. And they're continuing to pay negative rates for a reason. And it's not because the ECB is buying the bonds or the Bank of Japan. It's because the liquidity premium has gotten so high and therefore the inflation growth recovery potential so low that there is a match between real interest rates or the real markets and economic potential. The probability that the economy will actually match or actually perform at even a relatively decent rate. So... Yeah. Do you think if the ECB took rates to positive, that wouldn't take their, their rates all positive? No, I think Maybe. banks would thank them for removing part of the uh, uh, liquidity premium that they're having to pay, but I don't think it changes anything material you'd other have, than the have, fact uh, that liquidity premium. They still think, curve? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's negative it's still, rates. A lot of it is about safe asset shortage, you know, collateral scarcity. That, you know, when you look at some of these bonds, for example, especially in Europe, they're not really investments. They're not, inve I mean, to you and me, they might be, but to the banks that own them, the financial system that requires them to get into any kind of collateralized funding opportunity, whether it be repo or derivatives, these are balance sheet tools. And because they're so, because they're in shortage, short supply, they're, they, they, it's simple economics. What happens is the price of them go through the roof, regardless of any other factors. So one reason that is creating this high degree of demand for, and then therefore high prices for safe and liquid instruments is this collateralized environment that we have to live with. And until something happens in that, in that sense, we're kind of stuck. There's really no way around it. So, and then, so staying transactional, negative real rates in the US, which we have right now, and I guess seemingly you say will continue. I think it's bullish for stocks that in theory is bullish for gold because once upon a time we used to trade gold versus real rates. Yeah, you, close correlation with those two. And, and, and then finally, you think that that there's a policy mistake about to happen over here with the curve? I mean, with the curve, not inverting yet, but actually it is inverted in forward space in this sense. If you look at the dots out two years versus where tens are right now, it's yeah. kind of the Fed's kind of projected an inverted curve out there. So you're you're buying into that then? Yeah, you look at the particularly for me the five the the flattening between the five year and the ten year because that's the short run versus the long run where they really mix. The fact that it's, it's flattened so dramatically, especially since October, when we had that last five-year tips auction, to get back to that, 
the curve is sending a very sound signal that, hey, something's not right here. Whatever it is, you know, we can argue about what it is, but whatever it is, the market is uniformly saying, not just in treasuries, but all around the world, we see these flattening where the markets are saying something's not right here. So whatever Jay Powell thinks is going on in terms of consumer prices and the unemployment rate, we're just not buying it. The market so, just doesn't so, buy it. Mike, I want you to come in over here because what he's saying basically is we're going to go hit a wall with a recession. The, 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 the curves are predicting it. And I, I, I buy into that completely uh, of, of, the, of the curve you know, being smarter than I am. Um, and that means, I presume that- Curves the, are smarter than all of us, Harley. That's why fiscal, I love them. The, we're going to see a continuation of fiscal policy to support into a recession. That's what governments do. So wouldn't that mean, Mike, that, I mean, we're going to see a lot of inflation as fiscal policy pounds on in? It so didn't I, I, in Japan, though. I, I, so where, where I think I would come out on the other side of that, Harley, is to emphasize that what we will see is a lot of chicken with the head cut off activity to try to forestall it. Right. We are not making or good come in after stories. after it's over. I mean, that's that's when fiscal authorities come in. They come in after. I mean, first of all, they deny it ever. It's happening. They say everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. And then once it's finally hit and then it's, it's the worst it becomes worse, uh, bad enough that it's no longer you can no longer plausibly deny it. That's when they come in after the destruction has already been is already taken place. Well, we already have the BBB on the table. I suspect any kind of hint of recession would, would, would get that thing pass pretty quickly. So I, I think that's correct. And this, I mean, this goes back to, you know, a piece that I wrote a little bit over a year ago and the idea of the paper policy in a time of pandemics, right? When all hell breaks loose, we should expect the monetary authorities and the fiscal authorities to be very eager to accommodate fixes, right? Where we are right now with equity markets sitting at all time highs, credit spreads sitting near all time lows is creating conditions under which Powell is actually talking about withdrawing stimulus at exactly the point that we're looking at this and saying, hey, wait a second, the, the, the forward curves are starting to suggest there's something really, really off here. You know, the dynamic of, of team transitory and team structural, I, I would just suggest is maybe a little different, you know, let's forget the timing component because everyone is correct. The way that OER is calculated, for example, is going to lead to a lagged dynamic as we see the rental pools because they, they are done every six months. They cycle through, et cetera. We have at least a three-year time period in which OER is going to respond to the rental price increases that we've already seen. That's written into stone. We can basically write it off, right? But the risk is that we then use that lagging indicator to try to make forward policy. And I think what both Jeff and I would say is, is that on the team transitory side, look, positive components that are driving it, supply chain issues, fiscal policy, mandates, et cetera, versus demographics and debt on the other side of the coin, right? It's very hard to have structurally positive real interest rates and real interest rate environments when you have conditions like you have in Asia or in Europe where the population is now actually shrinking in a meaningful fashion. You see this anytime you go to, Jeff is from, you know, we learned earlier today that Jeff is from Mexico, New York, which is an upstate New York, right? The demand for property in upstate New York creates conditions under which it does not appreciate in real terms. There is no demand for building new houses other than as, hey, you know what? I really wanna have something on a luxury basis, right? If you could price the cost of interest rates locally as compared to nationally for Mexico, New York, you'd have to have deeply negative interest rates in order to spur economic activity, right? We can't do that. So we have transfer systems that we call fiscal on the other side of it. On the team structural, like there are things that I do think are important. The deglobalization dynamic, the, the potential loss of China as a source of supply, that can create conditions under which things like patio furniture or athletic shoes or furniture rises in price meaning that we're going to buy less of it, right? We're just going to get less. People will be worse off. They will be unhappy. And I see this in many of the Q&A questions that are coming through. It's not that Jeff and I are actually saying the higher prices are not bad, right? The higher prices are a mechanism by which we reallocate resources in the economy. No, and that, Mike, that might be the thing that's bothering the curves, right? That the, we're, we're way of, we may be right now experiencing the classic oil supply shock case, where the fact that people are not prepared to pay so much for gasoline and energy prices 
actually does provoke the recession because it's a, no. it's an, it's a non-productive introduction. It's not an, it's not an inflationary introduction to the real economy. As we said before, the pie hasn't grown. It's robbed from other parts of the, the pie that isn't growing. And it's creating a whole lot of problems that may be, and that may be the reason why we're seeing all this angst in the market curves, which are saying something's not right here. It might be this quote unquote inflation, the consumer price advance has actually provoked too much of a response. I, I really do think that's a critical point. And, you know, we all know the, the story of John Law and the Mississippi bubble, right? One of the more obscure things is actually going back and reading Alexander Hamilton's assessment of John Law, right? Alexander Hamilton, the creator of our currency system, looked at what John Law did and said he was right, right? This is the same Alexander Hamilton who pegged the US dollar to gold, making sure that it was exchangeable on the global stage. Why? Because he was trying to attract investment into the United States. He was trying to make it super attractive for foreign investors to put capital, the scarce capital, into the United States. But his observation was that law was correct. He just spent the money terribly. Yes. <laughs> and that's the issue that we face, right? So when we focus on the Fed and we focus on the Fed printer goes burr dynamic, we're robbing ourselves of having the very rich discussion of should we have a Green New Deal? Should we replace perfectly functional carbon-based energy in a very short period of time with much more expensive non-carbon-based energy, right? Should we ignore nuclear? Should we do all this? We're not having a real discussion about it because we're so busy screaming at the Fed printer goes burr mechanism that we're ignoring the question of how do we spend the scarce resources that we have as a society? And there's even a better argument before that, right? Because this global monetary system did not do a particularly good job of intermediating before the crisis either. That's how we ended up with subprime mortgages and, and the housing bubble in the United States and the corporate debt bubbles all around the world, was that maybe this banking system wasn't doing its job either. So in the absence of banks who have stepped back from that intermediation function, they haven't created the money or the credit since 2008 it's quite natural that governments are going to step in. We've seen it in countless examples around throughout history, including a recent, the recent example in Japan, and governments aren't any better at it either. So in one sense, that's also deflationary because governments like the ridiculous uh, excesses of the banking system in the pre-crisis era, we don't have a good intermediation function that is matching legitimate demand for legitimate supply of money. We're just trying to, we're just basically, everybody's just throwing crap against the wall and hoping something sticks when that's a really poor way to run an economic system or not run an economic system. Jeff, you know, I, 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 I've written a lot about hedging interest rates because if rates were to go higher, there'd be bad things happening to a levered financial economy. But, but my thought has been, I'm very confident that inflation, as someone measures it, will be higher or will stay high for a while. I, I feel very good about that. I'm not saying that I think rates are going to go and match them. I, that, that I can't quite figure out. So one is not leading to the other. So Jeff, what would it take? What would happen? What would need to occur for interest rates to rise, put the 10-year at 35 to 4%? What would have to, to make that happen? Or is it impossible in the current world? I think it's impossible in the current environment because we have a broken banking system, we have a broken monetary system, and it's a, you know it's a worldwide problem because this is the reserve currency. So in order for us to get normalizing rates, we would first have to do something about that broken monetary system, and that's on nobody's radar. Nobody's talking about it because, as Mike says, everybody thinks the Federal Reserve has printed money, and therefore we don't. How can we possibly have a monetary problem? Why would we need to fix a problem that doesn't exist? So in my analysis, in my mind, we're not going to see rates normalize until the primary problem in that system is, is addressed. And then hopefully some kind of realistic solution is offered, which is an incredibly huge, enormous, complex challenge to begin with. How do you replace an entire reserve system that has been existing and developing on an ad hoc uh, sort of private shadow basis for half a century? And, and I, I want to interject here and actually answer a question that just popped up in the, in the Q&A, right, which goes exactly to this point. The one thing we know about how you would not fix that system is by reinforcing effectively the monopoly power of the largest banks 
to control access to credit. Yes, absolutely. And that's that's a that was a primary problem in the old system when it appeared to work, at least appeared to be stable, when that was a source of instability because it prioritized those largest banks. And not only did it prioritize them, it gave them a leg up, a sort of rent seeking because of this information asymmetry that they held over the marketplace. And Harley, I think you would know that better than anybody else, having traded in, in the fixed income markets as deeply and as long as you had, you know, that was that was a source of instability in the marketplace to begin with. It was only it was only sort of kind of papered over so long as it appeared to be stable, as long as it was growing as uh, exponentially as it had. I, I mean, I, I think the commercial banks now are con ed. They're basically a utility um, uh, for the government. So circling back to to actionable ideas, because people here want to go and do things as you've described it. I'd be bullish on equities. I'd be bullish on gold. And frankly, I'd, I'd probably buy more houses because <laughs> low rates and real, and, and, and I mean, negative real rates uh, and, and inflation. And if we're going to get any kind of negative economic result in the next couple of years from predicted by the, the curve, then we're going to see increased fiscal spending, either SNAP or otherwise. I mean, it, it, Mike, have I tied those things together? So my, my pushback to that, I'm just going to share a screen that wasn't actually in our slides, right? So this is this is the forward two-year, two-year, right? Um, and it's, a, it's another way of thinking about the yield curve dynamic. We don't have a lot of examples of attempts at steepening cycles tied to the Fed cutting rates that then reverse sharply, right? We are experiencing one now. We experienced one in early 2008 when likewise, we saw commodity prices explode to the top side. The perception that the Fed was stepping into print money associated with the housing crisis, et cetera. Like, I'll be honest with you, I am terrified for the economy next year. And it is the one thing that keeps me from being overly excited about the underlying dynamics of equity markets, where as Jeff alluded to, I broadly don't think the Fed has that much to do with stock markets. I think the role of passive and the increased dynamics around inelasticity, the hodling dynamic around passive is creating a much bigger problem. So like I'm quite concerned about the path that we're going. And I would suggest that the rates markets is actually already telling us that this is the case. Whether that shows up or not, I think is going to be dependent upon the fiscal policy. I think it's going to be dependent to a certain extent on stochastic events that, that play out. Like we don't know, right? Nothing is deterministic in this system. But I would be, I, I'm cautious. I'm very, very cautious. I think bonds, I've written about this on Twitter. I did a bond poll. I did a poll where nobody has any interest in buying bonds whatsoever. We have Q&A questions, you know, who would ever buy a 1.8% treasury bond? Well, remember, they're 1.4 now, right? So somebody <laughs> clearly made a very good trade there. Um, but Jeff, I, I want to ask one question. Do you, see, do, you, um, do you not believe in the theory of crowding out then? No, absolutely. I think it can be the case depending on certain circumstances. I think what happens most of the time- We're not seeing it right now though. No, I don't think so. I think what's happened is, again, the demand for safe and liquid instruments is through the roof because the monetary system, liquidity risk is paramount across the, the, the entire financial landscape around the world. And it doesn't matter what central banks do because bank reserves don't help. We have an issue of safe asset scarcity along with balance sheet capacity shortages, which just simply means banks, they're kind of stuck in this, this rut where they can't really get out of this uh, continued, I hate to, uh, deflationary environment where Liquidity risk is paramount over everything else. You don't so, think that the Fed crowded out safe assets and forced people into risky assets, and it's actually a panic to buy risky assets that we have. That right was now. the theory behind QE. Remember, there's three channels behind QE. There's the portfolio effects, interest rates, as well as sentiment. And the literature is all, all very uniformly conclusive that QE doesn't work along any of those lines, particularly portfolio effects. Whether it's in the Japanese uh, case, which now stretches 20 years, we have two decades of QE, there are no portfolio effects. What happens is Japanese banks, like American banks or European banks, they sell their safe and liquid instruments to the, to the central bank and then go buy more with them. They don't go out and do risky activities. They buy more of the same instruments that they just sold to the Fed. And one of the reasons they do is because they need those balance sheet tools or they realize the rest of the financial system needs safe asset collateral, highly liquid collateral. 
So it's sort of like a conveyor belt where all we're doing is buying safe and liquid assets at the expense of the entire risky portions of the economy. QE never creates the portfolio effects, even though that's what's one of the heaviest parts of the theory. Just, no. just to emphasize, just to emphasize what, what Jeff is saying, if you just mechanically put yourself into a situation where you recognize that the risk is the collateral, the risk is somebody can't come up with the income to repay against that shortage, right? That the economic activity that we're describing is becoming less and less and less robust. The zombification, we've seen more and more zombie companies that are incapable of servicing their debt. The incentive structure becomes very, very clear that you allocate capital only to the highest quality credits. It becomes harder and harder and harder to justify taking the risk on the new entrepreneur, on the local business, et cetera. And so if you're JP Morgan, who do you lend to? Apple, All right? Apple doesn't need your capital. They don't care. The local yeah, entrepreneur, and this is, this is again, part of what we see throughout the system, entrepreneurship is stagnating in the face of a shortage of capital. It's exactly what we saw in Japan, where borrowing costs for large corporations were measured in the single basis points and borrowing costs for growing entrepreneurial businesses, they had to turn to the Yakuza for financing. I would say that <laughs> you can be too smart to trade, that if you go look at the last decade, 20 years, you've seen a very strong negative correlation between stocks and bonds, stocks up, bonds down and vice versa, Yet magically, both are at their all-time highs, which seems strange. So if there's a negative correlation, one should be at the high, one should be at the low. So it's very important when you play with statistics and charts, you actually kind of look at you know, what's actually happening as opposed to these you know, picking the moving average you want to go and use. And I would say, once again, who are you going to believe, believe me or your lying eyes? I mean, there is inflation, and there it is. Yeah, but but Harley, you got to remember that you're using two separate components here, right? So one is when you talk about bonds being at their all-time highs, you're talking about a bond index, right? And that bond index has zero what, risk. Treasuries? That's not yeah. index. Pick the thirty-year bond. Fix it. You, you, you pick any thirty-year bond, right? Yeah. And if I cut interest rates, or interest rates fall over time because every time risk assets go down, I cut interest rates. What do you think is going to happen to the level of that index? They're cutting the, they're only cutting the front rate, like unless the back rate matters. You just you already told That's, me that buying QE doesn't matter. I, I I didn't say that the back rate is a function of them buying. I said that if every single time something bad happens, they cut interest rates. What you would expect to have people do is demand duration as a hedge for their portfolios. Right. And that's exactly what Jeff and I are saying. So the demand for that hedge is at all-time highs. In fact, we are so eager to buy that hedge that we now have negative expected return associated with it, which is just another way of saying it's just become another put, right? <laughs> That's a real good way to put it. And like you said before, I think there's, you know, the point you made before about the, the hidden real rate is, is applicable too, right? I mean, the banking system will fall over themselves to lend to Apple or Google, but they won't lend to anybody else. But that doesn't ever get captured in any market price because we don't price transactions that don't happen. Exactly. So it becomes another layer of confusion and complication trying to sort out all of these issues. Why is it that Apple can, can borrow at an obscenely low level, but mom and pop can't get a loan to save their life? It's, you know, there's, there's a reason for it. And it's not, it's not the CPI and it's not the Federal Reserve. Okay, so we, we have to wrap this up as expected. There was lots of shouting, very little physical violence, although I'm sure that both Harley's brain and Jeff's brain are hurting a little bit right now. Um, I'd love to, to bring us back to the ending poll and see if anybody changed their mind. Um, so please fill out the poll and we'll try to, um, we, we've got a tiny tiny amount left. Um, I'm, I'm looking through to see if there are any other questions that we can hit. Um, uh, we should highlight the ones that say, Mr. Green, huge admirer. You are so. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the home podcast advantage. Yeah. So it, it looks like we got at least a touch on most of the things that we were looking for. I, I just want to emphasize how much I appreciate everybody showing up and participating. We had I, it, this sounds unbelievable. We had well over 150 questions come in from the audience. We're going to copy them down. We're going to do the best we can to send out answers as soon as we possibly can. And Harley, you lost. We switched to the group. <laughs> They're coming earlier. 
<laughs> I don't think it was a fair fight. So I don't think this is a this is a, a reflection of Harley at all. I think I don't think so it. either. Yeah, I, the the reflection of Harley is off of my forehead, but um, <laughs> mine too. Thank you, thank you so much to everyone. I really do appreciate it. We will try to get answers out over email um, and or and uh, potentially post them onto the Simplify website. This is this was fantastic. Thank you so much, everyone who tuned in and joined. Brian will tell you about our upcoming guests on the next kiss. And, and we've got a really exciting lineup ahead, including Lacey Hunt, who a number of people referenced. Yeah. And, um, and uh, the, the replay will be available as Mike alluded to, I'm looking forward to watching it. Cause that way I can like understand about half of what was discussed. So I'm excited about that. And then please leave it. Let us know about the feedback. Uh, there's a feedback follow-up. If you'd like to get some of just research from Alham brothers, there's an opportunity to, to sign up for that. So, I definitely do that. And then join us for next month's Keeping It Simple on January 13th with allocation expert and FinTwit heartthrob Corey Hofstein. So lots going on. Uh, we'll keep populating the calendar. We'll keep doing this. But thank you for everyone who joined us today and have a great evening.